The unfortunate truth is that can be your newest responder that you've had on the department and just got out of their firefighting school. And they have to run that entire incident as an incident commander. Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me on another edition of Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Now let's get started. If you're a firefighter in a large metro department, you might find today's topic a little unfamiliar. Because for firefighters in rural or even suburban areas, the challenges can be very different than yours. And if we're talking about a volunteer department, that alone adds a level of difficulty. Today's guest is the chief of a volunteer department that does cover a rural community. He knows that any call may be hampered by long response times, a lack of manpower, and even a lack of water. Yet his department has the same goals as every other, to get on scene and get the fire out. How to accomplish that? He's got some ideas and the first 10 minutes on scene count. We'll talk about that. Justin Bailey is the fire chief of the Oliver Springs Fire Department in Tennessee. He oversees 20 paid-on-call volunteers who cover a 5.5-square-mile primary area. Mutual aid is much larger. Justin's also a master firefighter with the Knoxville, Tennessee Fire Department. Justin's also a master firefighter with the Knoxville, Tennessee Fire Department, where he served since 2007. He hosts seminars on volunteer training program development, professional development, and rural fireground management. And Justin Bailey joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's start with the reality of volunteer responses. What's the number one problem you face? The number one problem that we face is manpower on any incident. The majority of our calls are happening in various times of the day. And the reality today is that the majority of our responders are working Monday through Friday, nine to five. So manpower is a big issue. So then how do you make people available for responses? Nowadays, Anybody in the volunteer fire service that has not gotten automatic aid agreement for mutual aid up front, they're almost behind the eight ball. We're having to, what used to be able to be able to get one or two fire departments and handle an incident. Now we're having to get three, four different departments to work together to be able to have enough manpower to be able to mitigate just the basic house fire. And is that because so many of them are volunteer as well? It is because there are so many of them that are volunteer, especially in the area that I respond in. The majority of the time is there is one career department and 
the rest of them in the area are volunteer. When you're getting on scene with two or maybe three people, how do you assign them for maximum effectiveness? Maximum effect for any kind of incident is, we're talking strictly house fires, is going to be getting water on the fire. So those two to three people, they're going to be there first. Their primary job is to get water on that fire to be able to stop its spread and give any possible victim the best chance for survival. Third person is typically trying to size up and try to find any possible victims. And then that third person is going to be the kind of the eyes and the ears, trying to see if there's a victim. Uh, hopefully, if we have enough manpower to get there quick enough, we can go interior. But a lot of our fires are done with a transitional attack. So we'll start applying water from the exterior first and then move to the interior. Tell me about how people tend to arrive at these fires. Do a couple of them show up at the station and take a rig and then the other ones go directly to the scene? Or how does that work for you? For our department, it's going to be different than for every other department that's out there. There are some volunteer departments that they do have staffing, which is great. Some volunteer departments are moving towards a combination system, so they'll get the rig and take it to the scene. Then in my area, for example, most of the guys are one or two will go to the, the station, pick up the rig. The rest of them are responding POV. So it's not that two or three on scene all at the same time. Sometimes it's one's on scene and then a trickle effect of the rest of the responders, including your mutual aid and automated aid automatic aid departments that are responding with you. There are times that you get one person who brings their rig out to the scene alone? There is times that that happens. is not ideal, but... What can that person do effectively? I mean, what do you expect them to do if they're alone? They're setting up the entire incident. So as a lone responder, um, they're getting the pumping to gear. They're applying water either by deck gun or they're going ahead and stretching the, uh, the initial attack line. Usually that one responder, once they get the attack line in service or to the point that they're being in service, they have another responder or, or multiple that will arrive on scene. That's got to be a little hairy for one person to be alone. It is. And the, the hard truth and reality is that's the reality of most of the volunteer departments, especially in the, the more rural areas of America. People watch TV and they see, you know, trucks pulling up from Chicago with Chicago fire and they've got four or five people on the rig. Whereas they live in, for instance, in my area in East Tennessee in a rural area. And the reality is it's one person pulling up on that rig. And they're starting the process, and then you'll have a second person show up a few minutes later, and then the third person show up a few minutes later. And, you know, the study's been out there that we need more people there at the same time. So some of those departments are transitioning to having on-call duty staffing, but they're running into that on-call duty staffing is conflicting with their careers. So their full-time job, which puts food on the table for their family, is what's their priority? 
because they have to take care of family first. So if it comes to on-duty staffing or working their full-time job, they're working their full-time job. Right. I know of a fire chief in Arizona who was told, you should supplement your career staff with volunteers. And he said, all right, do you own a business? And the man said, sure. He said, all right, so Bob works for you. Bob gets a page. He's got to go to a fire. Are you just going to let him leave? Well, I might need him to stay. Exactly. Everybody says that. And that's that's the truth and reality. Our department is blessed that I have a lot of guys that are career staffing somewhere else. So they have off days. So on their off days, they're covering the calls for instance for Oliver Springs. But the days of a business owner owning a business in town, shutting down the business, and then responding to the fire, unfortunately, those days are, are gone. And most people work for another company or they're in a bedroom community. And if they're in a bedroom community, they're having to commute to work for their full-time job, then commute home. They cannot respond from work during the daytime or even at night if they're on shift. And that's the unfortunate reality. It's a constant problem with volunteer departments. I'll be back with more right after this. It may be the most important, most impactful, and most moving podcast about firefighters ever. It's true fire. It's about firefighters who have made the ultimate sacrifice while trying to save lives and property. This is a six-episode first season, and I've already produced a pilot episode. You can hear it at truefirepodcast.com. You'll find it to be a docudrama like none you've heard before. Now it's up to you. In order to produce the rest of the season, I've launched a Kickstarter funding campaign. It's a massive job to create this series, much more than Code 3, and it takes resources. So please go to truefirepodcast.com and click on the Kickstarter link to help me reach my goal by July 13th. It's an all-or-nothing deal, so I'm counting on you to make this happen. Let's honor these men and women and make sure the world never forgets their sacrifice. Let's switch gears and back to specifics again. Water is always going to be a problem in rural areas. Do you routinely dispatch a tanker on your structure calls? My primary jurisdiction is very diverse. I've got areas that have hydrants and I have areas that do not have hydrants. So if I'm responding to my second go area, all those areas do not have hydrants. So we, on initial call out, those departments in particular will respond a tanker. In the areas within my primary jurisdiction that we know that does not have any hydrants, those tankers are coming to us from there. Uh, my department specifically, we run pumper tankers. So oh. we, we, we do both with our apparatus. So then I imagine that you guys must drill pretty hard on water management. We, we drill hard on water management. We drill hard on 
just water supply as a, as a whole. The mindset in the area is slowly changing back to efficient water usage. So what was it like inefficiently? <laughs> inefficient water usage was firefighters pulling up to two, three, four rooms that are involved in pulling a inch and a half hand line or two inch and a half hand lines because the mindset was we'll use less water on our hand lines so we'll conserve our water when in reality the water itself was not being applied efficiently enough it didn't give it that knockdown power to the fire so that they they use less water in the long run instead what they did they just prolonged the incident for a longer duration of time. Right. They use less water over more time. Efficient use of water is now departments pulling up and not being afraid of pulling those larger hand lines, two and a half uh, hand lines along with either that or deploying a deck gun flowing 500 GPM. How large are your onboard tanks? The ones that we run is 1250, so 1250 gallons. Uh, some of my mutual aid partners, they'll run anywhere between 1,000 gallons to 2,000 gallons, depending on which apparatus that is in that area. So you guys are bringing enough water with you to do the job the right way. And that's something that we've had to change over the years. In, in a rural setting, 500 gallons of water on an engine is not efficient use. In more of an urban area, you can get away with it because you've got a hydrant three, four hundred feet away. But in a rural area, the hydrant is three, four miles away. So you're having to come in with that knockout power right out the gate. So let's look at the big picture. What actions do you expect your people to take in the first 10 minutes after they arrive? In the first 10 minutes after they arrive, some of the actions that I want to see them take. One, a good size up. That can be from the window and then, or the windshield, and then go from there doing their 360. But a lot of times that size up is also being done in conjunction with pulling that initial tack line. So my primary goal in that first 10 minutes is a good fire tack. After that, then we'll back up and we start worrying about a good, efficient water supply along with, with search and rescue. All the, all the tactics that are performed in the urban setting are still performed in the, in the volunteer rules setting. The only difference is it's a prolonged time and we might adjust our priorities a little differently. Primary attack being first, then doing search just because of manpower and manpower usage. What suggestions do you have for improving responses with the limited kind of resources departments like yours have? One, having good relationships with your mutual aid partners. And you're going to rely on these people more than you think you will because, again, the days of one department handling the majority of their fires is almost gone in the rural area and having those relationships up front it's not oh such and such firefighter from xyz fire department 
it's now John Smith from XYC Fire Department. So we have a relationship. So that relationship helps that camaraderie and that knowing what each other's going to do up front and what each other can bring to the incident as far as resources, what manpower, what training they have, all those things are, are key. A, another thing that I highly suggest is the implementation of some kind of form of technology. Most everybody has smartphone capabilities now, and I know some areas still has poor cell phone reception, but there are apps and tools out there for in the electronic field that will help you get the information in your hand that you need to know how many people you have responding, where my fire hydrants are, where am I going, and do I need more than what I, I have out the gate? So you're saying technology can help supplement people? Well, it's not that they supplement people because this is still a people business. The technology, all it does is supplement and help the instant commander know that they may need to call for more more resources than they originally thought up front. An example I would give is that if I'm responding into one of my farther reaches of my territory and I've only got two or three people responding from my department and my information is linked with my mutual aid department and they've only got two or three resources coming as far as manpower, I might have to reach beyond them and keep going until I know that I have enough resources, but all that's done by looking at an app on a phone. And that's people clicking that they're responding and you're seeing it on your phone in real time. That would certainly save time. Let's talk about ICs for a second. How quickly do you have an IC in place on a fire in your area? I mean, obviously every hall is different, but for the most part, how long does it take? The initial IC is always the initial responder that, that, that arrives on scene first. The unfortunate truth is that that can be your newest responder that you've had on the department and just got out of their firefighting school. And they have to run that entire incident as an incident commander until they're relieved from somebody else. Now that new guy has got to do that, but he's also got, if he's one of the very few people out there, the new guy also has to pull line and set up the pump and everything else. Yes. Usually within that 10 minutes, you have enough people that incident commander maybe might be able to step out and take a different or take a sole role of an incident commander. But Unfortunately, a lot of times you don't have enough people on scene for that res- that incident commander to be able to just be solely dedicated as the incident commander. They may be being the incident commander and also pumping the fire truck, or they may be the incident commander and also establishing a local water supply to the incident, or they may be the incident commander and they may be helping stretch the fire hose. So they have to be a what I call a working incident commander, unfortunately. You're also a Knoxville firefighter. What do you bring to this job from that job? 
so this is what I've learned between the two. And yeah, it, it can be frustrating. When I went from the rural area to when I got hired on with Knoxville, I was shell-shocked with the amount of resources that we could put on scene all at the same time. Then going from Knoxville to that rural area again, I'm shell-shocked again because the amount of resources I'm not allowed to or don't have as soon as I get on scene. What Knoxville has taught me for the rural areas, the amount of people it really truly needs to be on scene to mitigate an incident, and it's helped me learn how to reach out more and get enough resources on each incident. If it's calling two and three departments past some of my normal responding departments to be able to get enough resources. Well, it sounds like they've got the right guy for the job there. Justin Bailey, thanks for talking with me on Code 3 today. Thank you very much. There's no doubt that Justin's department, like many others around the U.S., deals with different circumstances than a career city department. What unique challenges do you face as a volunteer department? Maybe you don't have manpower who can respond quickly. Or it could be you need to truck in your water. Whatever it is, I'd like to hear from you, especially if you have solutions. You can leave your comments on our website at code3podcast.com slash smalltown. All one word, small town. There's links to more resources there as well. Or if you're willing, I'd love to put your voice on a future show. Call me at 562-337-9902 and leave a voicemail about your experience. That's 562-337-9902. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with more, and I hope you'll join me then. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.